The Bob Murphy Show, episode 225. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. Today I am going to be doing a replay of a recent interview I did with Buck Johnson. He had me on his podcast, Counterflow, to talk about my pamphlet, Common Sense, The Case for an Independent Texas. To get that book, and by the way, folks, the free PDF is still available, of course, but then I also have a Kindle version and a print-on-demand version if you want to get it through Amazon. I priced them as cheaply as Amazon would let me sell them. So go to texascommonsense.com to get all those links. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Buck Johnson on his Counterflow podcast. Bob Murphy, welcome to the show. I'm glad to finally have you here. Thanks for having me, Buck. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're going to talk about Texas secession, which a lot of my audience, I'm pretty sure they're quite familiar with you, but maybe not within the context of talking about Texas secession. But it is your first time on my show. So for those of my audience that are, have been under a rock and are saying, who's Bob Murphy? Give them a quick intro on who you are and what you do. Sure. So um, I'm an economist of the Austrian School of Economics. I'm sure your listeners know what that is. I got my degree at, at New York University. I taught at Hillsdale for a few years. Um, right now, I, I have several affiliations, but I'm a senior fellow with the Mises Institute. I'm sure many of your listeners know who they are. And uh, I, I was actually a Texas Tech for a few years out in Lubbock. So, you know, I'm, I'm originally from upstate New York, so I'm, I'm, I'm a, a Yankee, but I, I did live in Texas for a few years, so I have a little bit of knowledge of the culture down there. And um, yeah, so like I said, I, I have a lot of books on like economic theory, on libertarianism, just explaining how does the free market work to the, to the general public. But more recently, yes, I, with the condition the country is in and where things look like they're going, I have thought that states breaking away is really the only viable midterm solution. And Texas, to me, seemed like the obvious candidate to be the first one to go. Don't look now, but there was a cat trying to get I, into I your... I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. As we go, see you guys who only listen to the audio version, you miss out on so much. So yeah, let's... This surprised me. So we have the same producer and he wrote to me and said, Bob Murphy's got a new... I guess we can call it for now an ebook." on Texas secession called Common Sense, the Case for an Independent Texas. And you kind of alluded to it in your opening uh, remarks there that the condition of the country, you could see where things maybe are headed. What specifically about Texas gave you this idea? Because a lot of people are saying, well, maybe Florida and DeSantis mm -hmm. will kind of break off on their right, own. Right. What is it about Texas that gave you this idea? Sure. So I, you know, I should say that it's, it's not that I'm opposed to uh, Florida doing it as well. Also, I'm friends with a lot of people in uh, New Hampshire, and they've got what they call the Free State Project. And, and I don't want to mischaracterize them. Some of the people there, you know, the, from day one, they thought, yeah, the goal is we're going to get a critical mass and then vote to leave. Other people just thought, no, it's not, it's not political. It's just as long as your neighbors think like you and you're going to practice agorism, it doesn't matter what the government's... So, 
you know, they they have different views as to what does that mean there. But yeah, to come back to your question, I've always been of the opinion that being able to secede from a broader political unit isn't every person's right to do so. And, you know, that's not some weird Rothbardian position. That's, you know, Declaration of Independence. But in the U.S., when it lectures, government, when it lectures other countries around the world for, hey, let your dissidents go and stop crackdowns, you know, that's the same view they're relying on. But in, in terms of the U.S. situation, yeah, the reason I think Texas makes sense, and so in the pamphlet, I, I go through this in detail as to why it is, but I, I if, if we're talking about, you know, one state breaking away, then clearly it's got to be, you know, have have a, an outside boundary that it's got to be, you know, border either land or ocean to be able to have commerce and stuff with the rest of the world. Otherwise, it'd be too easy for the U.S. government just to encircle them if, if things, mm-hmm. you know, went went sideways. And so, yeah, on that score, Florida could, but technically the, the reason just strategically, I think Texas makes more sense. But number one, Texas is bigger, as you know, have a bigger population, bigger economy. And so just in terms of being able to stand on its own and, you know, make, make it costlier if the U.S. government did want to make things get ugly, there's that element. But also... Florida, if the U.S. government wanted to, could just blockade it with a you know, naval blockade. Whereas with Texas, they would also have to try to, there's, for one thing, there's two oceans they'd have to close off and also, of course, the whole border with Mexico. And so if Texas were to formally announce that, hey, now we're an independent country, then they could have commerce with Mexico and the U.S. government, if they wanted to come in and block that off, they would be interfering with the sovereign country of Mexico as well. It wouldn't just be construed as an internal dispute the way they could just have a close naval blockade around Florida. So that's, those are the, you know, the main reasons that if you're saying, you know, why, but the other thing too is Texans have this, or they go, some people say Texian, like, cause that was the, the term that they used back then that it, it did. It was a, you know, a, its own country right. for a while there. And so that's, and, and the more significant thing, what regards to the history is that, Texans care about that. I remember Phil Magnus one time when we were at, when I was at Texas Tech came to give a lecture, and he said, "Hey, how many people here?" He's talking to the students at Texas Tech. How many people here are actually from Texas? You know, half the kids raise their hand. He goes, "Yeah, the greatest country in the world," and everybody laughed and, and clapped. Yeah. Right. So that's kids from other states don't think like that. Or a different right. example, um, I, I heard that you know some people from Texas, if they're like traveling in Europe, and someone says, "Hey, where are you from?" They don't say the U.S. or America. They say Texas, whereas yes. if I were traveling and someone said, where were you from? I wouldn't say New York, meaning New York State. That, <laughs> right. that wouldn't even occur. I would say, oh, from the U.S. So that's, those are some of the reasons that I thought if a, if a region is going to break away and it is going to make sense that it could be its own s- system, Texas is obviously the place to start. When you first, I know you're not in Texas at the moment. When you did move to Texas as an outsider, so to speak, did you? Mm-hmm. I hear this from other outsiders oh my God, I've never seen a state with this much pride in their own state, meaning like their flags were everywhere. It's Texas Ford and Texas Chevrolet. Did you notice that? Yes. So not so much the flag. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you about the flag, but the thing that struck me was, and I was just talking with students and they were mentioning how like growing up in Texas, they learned a lot about Texas history. Like that was a core part of the curriculum. Whereas, you know, I grew up in upstate New York and in our history, no, no, we didn't deal with the history of New York State. Like, that wasn't a thing. And right. so, so yes, to answer your question, that did strike me. And just so your listeners know, I, so I was at, in Lubbock, and then also um, I had an apartment in Houston for family reasons. And so I would make that 
trip a lot. And so I, I spent a lot of time in both Houston and Lubbock to kind of, so I did get a mix of like a big city in Texas and also yes. a smaller one. And just to get an idea of how big Texas was, because, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a long trip just to go there. And yeah. most other states, if you're driving that long, you're not still in the state. As growing up here, we set a pledge allegiance to the Texas flag, you know, before maybe or right after the pledge allegiance to the American flag when we're in school growing up. I always thought, I think we're the only people that do that. You start off in the book by discussing... Yeah, I mean, just as a quick, like, uh-huh. I, I don't even, we don't even know, I don't even know what the New York state flag looks like, let alone did we wow. pledge allegiance to it. Yeah, okay. I have no idea what it looks like. Okay. You start in the book by discussing the two Americas, and I think that should be obvious that we've got <laughs> that situation going on at the moment. I used to say, it seems like we're seeing the same movie with two different versions of what we just watched, and now it seems like we're not even looking at the same screen anymore. It's not even the same movie. It's just, it's so different. And I, I hear sometimes of people on CNN and you'll see, you know, these tweets we, we all seem to have poke fun at online. And it's like they're watching, I don't even know where they're coming from most of the time. How do you think we've arrived at this point? Well, yeah, so let me just buck, underscore what you just said. Because he... Obviously, like CNN or NPR or something, they always had what we would have called a bias. But when Trump came in, I mean, it really just, it it turned into open advocacy. And um, like, I remember when there was a piece on NPR, I was was actually driving around Houston when this happened. I remember where I was in the car um, when it happened. And they openly explain to their viewers how, you know, we're not just going to parrot what the president says in his press release or his conferences without, you know, and so when they started using the the terminology, the phrasing, when they'd say, the president claimed falsely, you know, where they would just editorialize and just tell you that, no, what, you know, we're reporting, you know, the news of what the U.S. president just said, but we're going to tell you that's a false statement. And they wouldn't do that with any other world leader. You know, so right. one would have thought the only person on planet Earth who regularly lies is Donald Trump. And that's the one, you know, person that NPR is going to reuse that language for. And so obviously that's, that's crazy. That up till then, they would just report. If they wanted to give the other side, they would have some expert on or they would quote, you know, the Democrat majority leader or something like that to give the other perspective so that you could have both sides. But they wouldn't, the person reading the news would not pause to tell you that what was just said was a false statement. Like, that's just not how the news worked. And like I said, I remember they explicitly explained to their viewers that this is the decision we've made now because, you know, Trump is blah, blah, blah. That's why we force it. So there's that. And then another thing too is right when this pamphlet, when I was getting ready to release it, the NFL decided yeah. to have two national anthems. I mean, so again, what more has to happen for those people who are saying, oh, no, no, this is just, you know, people are angry. Hey, it was like this in the 60s. It'll blow over. Like, no, this, there really are two Americas at this point. And so, you know, how, how do we get that? I mean, I'm not going to say anything novel here, Buck, but I think, yeah, it's, as people say, Trump was extremely polarizing. Yeah. It, it's gotten worse with every president, right? So I'm in my mid forties. I can remember with Bill Clinton, you know, people were, on the left, were angry at the right-wingers and how much they demonized Bill Clinton. Hey, it's not really they disagree with his policy, but they're making it like he's a bad man. And, yeah. and then, of course, George W. Bush is the war criminal and that, 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 that. He's the worst person on earth. And then, you know, and it, so it just, with every president, the animosity and hostility just got amped up. So it was, um, I mean, we, my wife and I, when we watched um, Trump versus Biden, that debate, and we got the, the flavor of it. We went just for kicks and looked at the Nixon-Kennedy, or I'm sorry, the, yeah, the, the Nixon-Kennedy debates just to see. I mean, 
it was the contrast was so enormous that you couldn't even imagine. Just you know, <laughs> it used, they used to do a better job of being statesmanlike. Or whatever. You know, I mean, the U.S. Yes. government still did stuff that I would think was horrible, but they right. at least put on a better show of decorum. Whereas yeah. now, yeah, it's, they don't even like I say the news now doesn't even pretend that they're giving you accurate stuff. It's just though here's you know what you need to know about this evil guy Donald Trump. So yeah, and I think Facebook and things like that obviously have catered to you know, giving people bifurcated news that everyone goes to get their fix of, you know, what's what's our side saying and then what's the other side doing? And it's almost like you log in to Twitter or something hoping to see something crazy from your opponents because you get a thrill from it. Like, oh, I hate them so yes. much. <laughs> yes, yes. Have you seen any public polling within Texas on how people here feel about the thought of secession or that possibility even? I haven't looked recently. Uh, I did... It was interesting. There was a, a time, so I did a talk on this topic when I was actually at Texas Tech. So this was a few years ago, and it was before. Let me think. It was before. Was it before? I hope I'm not. Yeah, I'm not getting my timeline. It was before um, Trump first won, okay. and and it was it. But going into that election, I remember I saw polling, and it was the kind of thing where a lot, I don't remember the exact numbers, but some, I think it was like in the forty some percent of you know, Texans were at least open to the idea. And what's funny is in California, it was 40 some percent were open to the idea of California breaking away if Donald Trump won. Yes. And yeah. then in the, in the Texan, it was if Hillary Clinton won. And so it was interesting that both sides recognized, you know, at some point, if this person that you think is a cartoonish villain were to seize control of the federal government, maybe instead of just saying, well, let's campaign harder next time, like to realize, why don't we just extricate ourselves from this system? Because this is really messed up. Are you familiar with the Texas nationalist movement and the term Texit that they're trying to get out in popular vernacular? Yeah. So, I mean, I did re reference that. I did use that once, that term. So, yes, I, I know that. And it's, I, you know, like, like obvious analogy with, with Brexit. Yes, yes. Um, and, and yeah, and I, I like doing that too because it sort of, to me, diffuses the hysteria. As I argue in the pamphlet, like one yeah. issue was, well, hey, wouldn't this cause a civil war again? And I was like, well when Brexit happened and some people were arguing there might be a trade war, but nobody worried what well, G where that is, you know, continental Europe going to launch cruise missiles into London. Like that just would have been insane. You know, like, yes. no, if, if a group wants to break away from another one politically, you don't get to start blowing them up. And so likewise, right. so I do like that phrase of Texit. One thing though, too, is just in terms of, I don't know if you want to call it branding or marketing or whatnot, but so I, you know, talking with you and other people who have been in this for a while, of course, I'm comfortable using the term secession, but yeah. I don't lead with that because it is, you know, for a lot of Americans, the only thing they know of secession is, oh, the U.S. war between the states, you know, yeah. <laughs> for Southerners, whereas I call it Texas independence because that's really what it is too, that the war for U.S. independence was also a secessionist movement away right. from Great Britain, but that's not how it's been branded. And also they are, you know, two sides of the same coin. So, so yeah, I, I am, to answer your question, I'm familiar with Texit. It's, I'm only somewhat recent into this area because I'm, I'm more like was just someone who thought, oh, I just want to teach the ideas of liberty and how free markets work. And I'll let other people who want to be political activists go ahead and do what they will with that. You know, I, my, my job is just to convince the public of how a free society would, would operate. But like I say, it's things got so bad that I thought, and there were some logistical issues of, you know, and I don't know if you want to get into this stuff, if a state were to break away, like what would you do with social security and stuff oh, like yes. that? And I thought, yeah. oh yeah, I should, you know, actually I could weigh in on this. And so that's partly why. So right. yeah, I'm aware of the Texas people. I hadn't been in communication with them except sort of, you know, to give them a nod and hey, good luck over there, fellas. But 
now I am getting more into it. Yeah, well, that's, I want to get into some of that stuff because I've been into this topic. And when I discuss it with a quote unquote normie, there's mm-hmm. always these kind of similar concerns they bring up every time. And I think it's natural now that we realize people care more about safety, even more so than quote unquote liberty. You know, they want to feel safe. And sometimes we're trying to convince them that liberty is the safe route. But there's always concerns. Well, what about Social Security? And in fact, my parents have, have told me this. Funny, they're quote unquote conservative, but they are concerned about their Social Security and they're of that age. If let's say in a year from now, there's this process to get Texas its independence and, and they're going to grant us that, if we can even use that term. What would something like Social Security, what would that look like? And, and because they're going to say, well, you know, I paid in and I paid in and I, it's not fair if I don't get it. And if we break away, that we're not going to get it. What would that look like? So one thing is just to let, especially for the younger listeners to know, and I realize it's not addressed to your parents, that the Social Security and Medicare systems are utterly bankrupt. And like, even and I quote this in the pamphlet, even according to the government's own actuaries or the trustee report that recently came out, I'm just looking at this. So over a 75-year horizon, Social Security and Medicare have a combined $68 trillion shortfall, mm. right? Meaning they would need $68 trillion right now to start roll, you know, investing and rolling over, earning interest to be able to fund the mismatch between you know, workers, payroll contributions, and, and Medicare premiums going forward and the outgoing benefit checks. They would need $68 trillion right now just to plug that gap over the next 75 years. So clearly, younger people now who are paying into the system, they're not going to get their promised benefits. It's just, that's mathematically not going to happen. So what I said, though, in the, in the pamphlet is, is, yeah, at first, that, was, that did seem like a hard question. But then I realized, well, no, it's actually conceptually pretty easy. Right now, under the existing system, if a U.S. citizen decides, you know what, I want to go live in France and moves to France and then changes his citizenship— he still gets, you know, his social security payments. He doesn't get Medicare, but that's not because he renounced the citizenship. It's because Medicare is only going to fund U.S.-based healthcare, right? right so, right. but you still, there's, a, you know, you've, there's formulas and stuff like that. You got to have eligibility requirements. But in general, if you leave the U.S., you don't lose your uh, accumulated, you know, social security benefits. And so I was saying, conceptually, then it should be the same thing, like to just handle it simply without changing rules and come up with arbitrary procedures. If all of a sudden a bunch of people who currently live in Dallas then become citizens of a foreign country, namely the Republic of Texas, it's the same thing. They should just, mm-hmm. you know, just say, okay, I'm living in a different country now, but still, you know, I'm going to get my social security benefits just like I would have had I remained in the U.S. So to me, that's conceptually how it... Now, you could say, well, the U.S. government might be mad and not do that. You know, I can't, can't control what the U.S. government does to retaliate. But right. in terms of the, the accounting or the logistics, they do have procedures in place right now if a U.S. citizen goes to another country. You have a, a good section towards the end basically stating the rest of the country should just let Texas go. And this is a pitch, you know, I, I don't get often in, into this discussion with progressives because it's usually not very fruitful, but one of my pitches would be letting us go. Really, if you're a blue state person, a left winger of progressive in another state other than Texas, that's really a positive outcome, I think, for those people, because without Texas, it's going to be pretty tough 
to do anything for the Republican Party or certainly the Libertarian Party going forward to win anything. I mean, without Texas, it seems like the Democrats kind of get what they want. And certainly, I've heard many people from blue states now tell me, if you guys ever secede, I'm going there. So the blue staters get rid of a lot of the people that they would consider gun-toting ignorant Neanderthals. They get rid of them. They all come down to Texas, and they can have their progressive utopia elsewhere in the United States. Do you see that as a positive pitch to the to the left, too, and other states to just let us go? Right. And so what I was trying to do with this pamphlet was to be to honestly and sincerely say to everybody involved, hey, somebody's going to get hurt. If we continue on this trajectory, there's going to be open warfare in the streets. I don't necessarily mean between U.S. troops and right. resistors. I mean more like Antifa types versus Proud Boy, you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. And as this stuff uh, keep, continues to escalate. Um, and so I was saying, you know, trying to say authentically and sincerely, this is what I'm proposing here, namely an independent Texas helps everybody. Obviously, it appeals to the people who don't like what the U.S. federal government's doing or who are aghast at the culture wars and things like that. And say, I don't recognize my country anymore. And, yes. you know, let them all flock to Texas. But like you're saying, Buck, so one, I, I just had a couple independent arguments, again, trying to appeal to progressives to say, if, let's say, two-thirds of the people in Texas voted to leave, just let them go. And I tried to give a list of reasons why. And, yeah, one is the thing that you're saying, that you just had Donald Trump recently win that you think is a cartoonish villain. That's not going to happen anytime soon or anyone like him if a lot of, you know, if the people who are for Texas secession would move there. Because, I mean, just think, there would be no IRS, yeah. Like, so right there, lots of people would save many thousands of dollars annually on taxes just by relocating. So lots of people would go ahead and do that. Um, and they would tend to be right-wingers and yes. for cultural reasons as well. So I was saying right there, if they're going to Texas to be there and renounce their U.S. citizenship, that's good for you. Now you don't have to worry about the presidency anytime soon. And even with local, state and local politics as well, that there could be this, you know, this really angry minority that always is throwing sand in the gears. Let them go. And yes. then more seriously, you know, people who are worried about, hey, they're going to come take my guns and they're like camping out and getting drawn lines and saying, just instead of having them do that and you thinking, well, at some point we're going to have to deal with it, just give them this escape valve to say, no, yeah. just let them go move to Texas. And then you have to, and then the other thing, now I know people who think the pandemic was exaggerated or, you know, things like that, but for a progressive who thinks Fauci basically is a straight shooter, <laughs> according to their worldview, a big thing with mutations and the reason everyone is still at risk, even if they've been vaccinated, is because of this, you know, irrational Trumpist majority or minority, but sizable amount who refuse to get vaccinated. And that helps. And I'm, I believe just even on their own terms, if all, like, if there's pockets of unvaccinated people spread around the country, if they all just moved together and lived in one spot so that the unvaxxed and the vaccinated were all more distinct populations, then yes. there would be fewer mutations. And so, you know, because in the unvaxxed, there wouldn't be the kind the, the selectionary pressure from having the vaccine people there too. So that you wouldn't have resistant strains emerging as much. So for all these reasons, they should let them go. And then, and then of course, the number one reason is just consistency, that how could it be that the U.S. preaches democracy and self-determination around the world? And then if a group of people in Texas wanted to leave, we're going to send in troops. Yeah, that That doesn't make any sense at all. And so, yeah, so I was saying for all these reasons, progressives, if this were to, happen should let them go yeah and the the biggest stain in the last 20 years if shit if not a little bit more than that on the right 
even though I don't consider neocons of the right, they've still been the biggest stain on the right because of what they've done, the evil they've done around the world. They just flock away from Texas because they can't control this military. What are they going to do with the Texas military, you know? So something to think about for the new right in Texas who are seemingly anti-war these days. What would the money situation look like? And you're a, a very good one to ask this because of your expertise in economics. What, what would or what should a money situation look like in an independent Texas? Okay, great. So yeah, for there, so in terms of the progression of the pamphlet and the argument is in the big, you know, you know, in an earlier chapter, I explained to people in Texas, here's why you should want to sever ties with the U.S. federal government. And one of the main reasons was look at what the Federal Reserve has done with, with the dollar. And they, you know, and I, they've just, after, after the financial crisis, they had a lot of what was called quantitative easing. And then in 2020 with the coronavirus stuff, the Fed injected so much more money that it even dwarfed what happened um, after the financial crisis. And at this point, you know, average Americans are seeing it, you know, gasoline's way up and, you know, regular prices are rising such that even the official organs are admitting that they're now calling it transitory inflation. Like, mm-hmm. So it's people can see that, wow, everything's getting really expensive. And I'm saying that fits the data, you know, and you can see what they've done. Um, and so, and I, and I think the U.S. has gotten by with its historical reputation of being a sound government mm. and system. And so, in other words, like if Venezuela had done with its money supply what the Federal Reserve did with the U.S. dollar, it would have investors would have dumped it and it would have crashed already. And I think though that the U.S. government just has this prestige and people are giving them the benefit of the doubt. Well, they, but the more they keep doing this, I think more and more investors are going to realize, no, that's their game plan. They're just going to keep printing dollars until they have to stop because it crashes. And so I'm saying to people in Texas, you know, considering this, that's an extra reason you want to insulate yourselves from this system because this system is going to crash. Wall Street's going to crash. The dollar's going to crash. And so, you know, you want to put up a firewall, as it were, and sever ties while you still can. Um, as far then as, okay, so suppose there is a Republic of Texas and, you know, we don't have a governor anymore. He's like the president of Texas and da, da, da. what should we do? And my advice on this and many other issues, you don't need to do anything. Just people in Texas are adults. They can choose what monies they want to use. Presumably in the beginning, a lot of their transactions will still be denominated in U.S. dollars, but give them the freedom to diversify away from that. And the, the beauty is if they don't install an an income tax, you know, to replace the federal one, because Texas right now doesn't have a state level one. And so if they just sever that, and I'm strongly suggesting they don't institute an income tax, that right there gives people the freedom to transact in different currencies. Whereas now in the current system, there's a huge handicap that if you're trying to like run a business and pay your employees in Bitcoin or gold or something, if you have a stockpile of that in your savings to be able to pay your employees, when it goes up in price measured in U.S. dollars, then that's a capital gain. And so when you get rid of it, you know, you would have to report to the IRS that capital gain. And so there, that's like an, an impediment right now to diversifying away into some other currency, again, whether it's gold or silver coins or Bitcoin or what have you, because if you're operating under the U.S. federal income tax. So, so again, my answer, Buck, is to say, let people choose their own currencies that the Texas government does not need to issue a national currency and just let people pick what they want. And the, you know, the, the, that will diversify. So you'll be more robust. If one of those currencies crashes, you don't have all your eggs in one basket and people will be able to do that more easily if they don't have an income tax. 
I hear this one a lot too, that there's a, and for my audience listening, Bob covers much of this in his book. And so that's why I'm getting to a lot of these questions. The military base issue, there's a lot of them here in Texas. There are obviously United States military bases. (laughs) Of course, we've got many of those in countries that aren't our own. How would something like that work? And you can see that the cat was interested in this one. Yes, cat likes this when he's waving. She. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. So this is a, a tricky one. So here again, it's not that I have the the full blown solution down to the you know the last footnote here, but I think conceptually the way it would work is number one, the restoration of the uh, Republic of Texas, so that you know there's there's no U.S. federal government hanging on top of them, and now it's just their own system. They want to respect legitimate property rights. And so, for example, I said the, the new Texas government wouldn't want to come in in national, you know, quote, nationalize all of Exxon Mobil's holdings in the Permian Basin. They, I mean, nothing would stop them from doing that necessarily. But if they did that, number one, that would be theft. And number two, that would give a pretext to the U.S. government then to come in and say, hey, you know, this new government's abusing, uh, you know, people that we care about, like the Exxon shareholder. And so you wouldn't want to do that. So and so if you so. So property titles should not be getting rearranged just because of this referendum on leaving the union. And so likewise, everybody agrees right now, like who owns, you know, an Air Force base that's located in Texas? It's mm-hmm. the U.S. federal government. Okay. And so, you know, the, the, the actual planes and property, whatever, if everyone agrees, yeah, it's the U.S. military, that's their stuff. It's not that the Texas government would then become the owner of that property, However, certainly a sovereign nation, like you said, Buck, can say to the U.S. government, even if in the past they had agreed to let them in, they can change their mind and say, you know what, you guys got to get out. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, that's what would, would presumably happen is if Texans wanted to secede from the Union, they certainly wouldn't want U.S. troops stationed inside their country now. Right, right. And so they would yeah, just inform the U.S. government, okay, now we're independent. We don't want you in here. So, you know start making evacuation plans. And to me, that's, you know, so it's, that's diplomatically what would happen just like if there was a change in regime in some Middle Eastern country and some, you know, they used to have U.S. troops stationed there and then they said, you know what, the public now, the mood has changed. They want you guys out, so you got to leave. Yeah. And and then, you know, it might come down to behind the scenes, are they going to apply pressure, you know, that stuff, you know, presumably in Afghanistan and things for a long time, that's what it was like. But here, again, it would I think that's what would happen. And again, as long as this stuff, I should stress, the Texans should be very peaceful and orderly about it and transparent and just say, yep, this is what we decided, so we're going to need you to leave and make the U.S. be the one to say, no, we're not leaving. And then at least world opinion would know that, oh, these guys are an aggressor. They're occupying, you know, they have hostile occupation power in a land that doesn't want them there. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because uh, one of the common pushbacks I hear, and you address this too, I, I think you've addressed this on Twitter as well, I think my malice might have as well, is that, oh my God, the U.S. federal government's not going to let you. They'll send troops in, you know? And it's like, if that's what we're seriously thinking, if you seriously believe that, then we, we've got a lot of other problems right now. If you think the U.S. military is willing and it's full of people that are willing to march through Texas streets, killing people or bombing places because people voted to leave. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, again, I'm just going to re- – you hit the nail on the head and just rephrase that. Yep, that 
it is interesting that some people who just poo-poo this thing, you know, this idea from the outset, like, hey, let's not even go down this path because this is irrelevant or this is a moot point, is that, yeah, they will just say, come on, the U.S. government, you know, they've got nuclear bombs and tanks and whatever. What do you guys, you guys got your AR-15s or something? What are you going to do? And like you say, e- even if that were true, if that's the main thing you're saying, then like, whoa, we need to, let's talk about that more. It, it was never made clear to me growing up that it, <laughs> if I wanted to leave, my government would kill me. Like mm-hmm. that, and it's, it's, that's something we would have talked about, you know, the Soviet Union or whatever. That's what a bad government would do. And so it's interesting to me that for a lot of Americans, it's just so obvious that, oh, of course that's what would happen. And it's like, well, then why are you, you know, shouldn't we discuss that at least and, and reflect on that? Like, wow, we, we live under a tyrannical regime, don't we? If, if you know, we're, if the right of self-determination applies everywhere on earth except here, that's an interesting fact in and of itself. And another way to motivate it that I used in the pamphlet was just to say, like, let's, you know, say there was some woman who was with a, her boyfriend and she was thinking about leaving and if the reason she didn't leave was because she knew if she tried to break up with him, he would use violence on her, mm-hmm. well, then that right there means she needs to break up with him. You know yeah. what I mean? And so yeah. likewise, if if really you're thinking, no, one of the main trump cards in this argument is they would bomb us into submission, well, then that right there proves you're part of this evil system and you need to think about, you know, you could be discreet about it and, and wise and prudent if they're really, if violence is, is waiting in the wings, but that again it's not like some flippant point uh, or or that that's really the thing that bothers me about it is, is just how flippant and glib they are about it yeah. like, whoa if you're saying that that's a huge admission yes like it's some obvious thing we all know they'll just start blowing up schools and stuff like that right, um, right. but bob this was solved in 1865 it's set in stone now no one can secede we've learned that that's what they say too yeah, right. Yeah, the way, the way I like it when they phrase it is they say, didn't the Civil War settle this issue? Yeah. And so they're, um, yeah, so it's, there's different ways of, you know, that in general, they're saying might makes right. You wouldn't apply that anywhere else. You wouldn't say if someone wanted to, you know, have greater autonomy for Native American tribes. Right. Nobody would say, didn't the Trail of Tears settle this issue? Like that would be a horrifying statement. Nobody would talk like that. And yet for some reason, the fact that this government won a military conflict 100 plus years ago means that therefore, um, you know, that this isn't an issue anymore and, and people don't have the right of self-determination because they got crushed with hundreds of thousands of deaths a long time ago. I mean, it's a, it's funny that we have to even explain that one, but no, that's, that's not a good argument. No, a war does not settle a question of rights. And you go into it, and this is actually, this has been an interest of mine for multiple years and I have not read someone put it like you did, with the actual history of Texas and us joining the United States and some of the wording that was used with that, can you go into some of that? Because I found that interesting that I wasn't too familiar with it before. Right. So the the first thing a lot of people ask is, you know, would this be legal? You know, right. and so I had a few arguments. And, and so part of it was just to say, look at the, if you think that, okay, yes, back then, you know, there was this agreement made and the people of Texas voted to, you know, join the, the union and so forth. Well, clearly the federal government was promising to abide by the U.S. Constitution. And so we need to ask, have they lived up to their end of the bargain? And I listed some obvious examples in which they have. And things like under Obama, they instituted a secret kill list. And that was New York Times front page headline. That's not my conspiratorial phrasing. That's the way the New York Times referred to it as President Obama's secret kill list where they could kill U.S. citizens without a trial. Um, you know, it had to do with al-Qaeda and stuff. If people are wondering how could that be. But it was you know, openly discussed in the New York Times about how Obama and his staffers would have regular meetings to decide 
who are we going to put on this kill list next? So that right there should, you know, show people that the U.S. government is, is not respecting the Constitution in addition to all sorts of other things. Another example, people asked Nancy Pelosi when the Affordable Care Act was being debated, where in the Constitution does it give the federal government the authority to force people to buy health insurance? And she just went, are you serious? Are you serious? <laughs> and I have the, you know, the, the link to the clip if people want to see the video where you know, the idea that we would have to justify this like, to her was hilarious. So clearly the U.S. government's not living up to the bargain. So in that sense, any agreement would be null and void. But beyond that, so when... Yes, there was a long process, and I just summarized some of it in the in the, the history of the, in this pamphlet. But part of what happened is the U.S. government said to the then Republic of Texas, "You need to come up with a state constitution, and then we will admit you." And so the people had a referendum, and they voted to join, and they ratified this new you know state constitution of eight. So it's the eighteen forty five Constitution of Texas was the one that you know the people of Texas ratified, and then the U.S. government approved of. And at that point it was the Polk administration as part of the process of bringing Texas in. And so they all agreed to this. And one of the things, so in the first article of this, so again, this is the 1845 Texas constitution. It says section one, this is just a couple sentences here. All political power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. And they have at all times the unalienable right to alter reform or abolish their form of government in such manner as they may think expedient. Okay. So again, as part of the condition for the U.S. government allowing the then Republic of Texas to come in as a state, they said, you need to come up with a state constitution. They did, and that, what I just read, was in it, and the Polk administration signed off on that. So everybody agreed when they let Texas into the union with this thing saying that the people of Texas at all times retain their sovereignty and their ability to alter their government as they see fit. So, so yeah, the, so the point being here, it's not just the spirit of the law, but it's also the letter of the law. Clearly, you know, the, the people of Texas were not, even if you thought it was legitimate that they could bind their great-great-grandchildren into a political union they didn't want, mm. they didn't. They clearly reserved the right for the people of Texas to change their form of government if they wanted to. And so, yes, if the issue is, hey, I don't like the U.S. federal government, but come on, we got to abide by the rule of law. And so, I mean, no, that this isn't some extra legal activity, that this was inherent from the beginning. Realistic possibility of this happening. I, and uh, I'll preface this with, I actually have bets. I can't remember how much, but it was substantial within the next five years and within the next 10 years with some of my close friends. Realistic possibilities of an actual independent Texas within... I don't know, any timeline you'd like to give if you actually see it happening. Yes, I do think this is going to happen. I don't think this is just, you know, hey, well, a theoretical possibility worth exploiting. Mm -hmm. And that's partly why I went from just telling people if they asked me, oh, yeah, I'm in favor of secession, but, you know, focusing more on, now let's talk about the minimum wage or something, you know, because right. I'm an economist, that's the stuff I talk about. Yeah, the reason I decided to write this pamphlet, and so as I I think we're at a stage now where people need to be talking about this and people in Texas need to seriously be thinking through the logistics. Like, suppose we in the next election, we did have a referendum and this was approved. What would we actually do? Like, how would mm -hmm. we implement this and start having... Because th there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into this and, you know, you have the practical considerations and stuff. So I'm saying let's start doing that. And also to start the national conversation, just I want people to be on record 
is to say, well, yes, hypothetically, if they were to vote to secede, we would let them go. But that would be a bad idea because that's fine. But I want them on record to admit that, yes, of course, the U.S. government wouldn't drop bombs. That would be immoral. Mm-hmm. You know, just to, just to get them on record while it's still hypothetical, because I think, put it to you this way, as crazy as stuff is right now, imagine five years ago, if you had asked yourself back then, yeah. is the world going to look like this? You know, are, are people going to be looking to the government to say, do we have the right to have Thanksgiving at our homes? Yeah. Five years ago, that would have been inconceivable that that would be something that we would be looking to our governors to tell us whether we, you know, could have Thanksgiving or not. Yeah. And yet that's where we are. And so um, in addition to everything else that's yeah. going on. And so I, I think that, yeah, it's just going to keep accelerating. And be, because the people on the left, they see that the people on the right are starting to organize and they're, you know, always like six months behind in terms of hitting back yeah. and stuff. Or so six they have years. To, or <laughs> yeah. more, yeah, depending on the time. Yeah. So they have to, you know, keep pushing forward and, and shocking people with new things to distract them because they've got mm-hmm. so much that they're trying to ram through, I think. And so, uh, yes, I, I think more and more people as the level of outrage is keeps intensifying are more and more people are going to say we can't reform this system we we need to just break away and and so yes i do think this is going to happen so the point of doing it this way is to make it more orderly and peaceful as opposed to it just kind of happening because the system collapses when the when the dollar crashes i mean so that's part of my worldview too is i think the u.s dollar is going to crash like there's no doubt in my mind i don't know exactly when Mm-hmm. But I think once it starts happening, it's going to be a quick unraveling. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at some point when the checks from Washington stop flowing because Washington's broke, because right now they can just print money. Mm-hmm. And as long as people keep trusting, like, well, no, I'm sure the people running the Fed aren't crazy, then they can get away with it. But it, when that confidence is gone, they've lost that. And so then at that point, Washington loses its financial, uh, you know, its ability to buy people off. And then once that happens, I think it's going to be hard for them to hold the coalition again. Well, that's a good segue towards the end here. And I have some questions from people that listen to my show that they want me to ask you if you're okay with that. Sure. And you just kind of hinted at it. Of course, if I tell people you're on, I'm going to get some economics questions. Generally, what's going on with the inflation? We all see it now. Uh, Like you mentioned earlier, they're telling us it's transitory. Obviously, there's supply chain issues that we're seeing now. Do you think this will get worse before it gets better? And what's the way out of this that you see, if there is one? Right. So let me just preface this by saying that I famously lost an inflation bet. I think it was back in 2010, right? Mm -hmm. So I was alarmed at the QE that was happening after the financial crisis. Some other economists who were, one was a a literal ANCAP and one was a very limited government minarchist. So these two colleagues of mine bet me because they just disagree with the timeline and I lost. But so I just want to be clear that I thought conventional price inflation was going to hit sooner than it has, right? So I do want to admit that. But having said that, yes, they're printing money like crazy. We see prices rising. That's normally what you would expect. And um, so when you couple that, yes, with all of the, the shutdowns that happened, you know, during the actual lockdown period and now still paying workers in many cases more than they were making on the job in unemployment benefits, you know, it, that's going to have ramifications. You, you can't just have large segments of population not going into work and, you know, having ports shut down and whatnot. And then things, you know, they're, in order for the stuff to end up on the shelves at Walmart, there's a lot of things that have to happen you know, leading up to that. And a lot of those processes have been interrupted. 
So this is what it looks like. It's almost the flip side where up till now, most people have just taken for granted all the things that have to happen in a market economy so that the shelves are stocked all the time and you go in and you see all kinds of different varieties of stuff and the cashier's there and it's, it's pretty affordable. Like that's what we just think of as normal, but it's not automatic. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen and we see now what's going on when those processes get interrupted. So like I say, they're, the, the Fed, it's done a lot of stuff. It's not just the quantity of money it's created. It, for example, it got rid of reserve requirements in March of 2020, meaning that now banks legally don't need to hold money in reserve to back up their loans. You know, so that, mm-hmm. that's a major change. There's lots of the types of assets that the Fed can buy just kept expanding as these crises kept hitting. So it, it used to be that the Fed basically could buy U.S. treasuries, and that was kind of what it did. Now, anything, they could even buy individual, you know, groups of U.S. stocks if they wanted to, which would have been considered crazy. You know, what an abuse of power or potential abuse of power, you know, to have the U.S. Federal Reserve, you know, based in, in New York City, be able to just buy individual corporate stocks. But now that's on the table because everyone's looking to the Fed to bail everybody out. So my long way of answering and saying that, yes, you were seeing the, the results of price inflation already. And that's their go-to move at this point is ultimately people are looking at the Fed to be the lender of last resort. And so I, I think this is just going to get worse before it gets better. The only thing, in other words, that would get them to stop doing this is if there's a big crash in the dollar, just like the thing, you know, once they went off gold fully in 1971, we had the worst inflationary decade of, of peacetime U.S. history. And, you know, it took that experience to kind of scare them straight for a bit with Volcker coming in and slamming the brakes. So I think mm-hmm. you're going to see a similar thing here where they're going to let the economy, quote, run hot for a while before they would then slam the brake. Because right now, if they tighten, there's yeah. going to be a big financial crash. So they have an incentive to not tighten as long as it doesn't seem too bad. And so right now, it's mostly just people complaining about, wow, it, stuff's getting really expensive. So I think yeah. they're going to let that, you know, anger of the masses intensify somewhat first before they slam the brakes and, and ruin everybody on Wall Street. Oof. All right. Uh, <laughs> you had a dust up last week, it seemed, on Twitter. <laughs> Do you have anything against the post-libertarians or were you just having fun? I was being deliberately provocative, but I, there was substance to it. So, you know, I'll, just, I'll make two points. So one is I was very concerned or am very concerned. Some of their arguments, they're couching it as the non-aggression principle or the NAP is like keeping our hands tied, you know, and you NAP mm-hmm. worshipers would have us just sit there. And so I wanted to be clear that no, the NAP prevents you from initiating aggression against an innocent third party. Mm-hmm. And so if you're saying you want to untie our hands by getting rid of the NAP, then you're saying we want to be able to initiate aggression against, you know, people who did not start it with us. And I was just saying, you know, let's be clear about what you're saying there. And so some of the people I was arguing with when I was saying, so what is it that you want to be able to do? It was things that would be consistent with the NAP. And they were just saying, oh, there happen to be like Rothbardians who don't want to use this strategy but it wasn't because it was the NAP per se. And so I was just trying to clarify that. But more generally, that yes, in order for stuff like Texas secession or just, you know, local populism saying, hey, just leave us alone. You know, we just, we don't want to have vaccine mandates or passports in our area. But the, the general public should not think that you're actively planning violent retribution 
to get your way because then that will justify, you know, the feds coming in and doing whatever yeah. if they can credibly point and say, look at these guys are saying violence is on the table. Yeah. And so that's what I was saying, both logically that a lot of what they were saying to me didn't make sense that no, the sorts of things, if you want to respond to an aggressor, nothing in libertarianism prevents you from doing that. Mm-hmm. And that saying, hey, we need to have other stuff on the table. And I, and I was saying that, you know, I disagree ethically, number one, but number two is, in terms of PR and whatever, know that that's what the federal government wants you to be saying to then be able to tell the public so when we crack down, it's because of these guys. And so I'm saying, why would you be talking like that? Andrew from Popular Liberty, who's considered part of the post-libertarian group, Mm -hmm. actually has a presentation he calls archotropism. And you actually just stated one of his laws, I think. Basically, he'll use the example of the people on January 6th. You know, when you when you raise your head up like that, especially if you're a minority trying to kind of aggress, you give the federal government or the powers that be the perfect excuse to start a new war against you or aggress against you. So I think there might be some agreements in those points, uh, maybe more so than some things sometimes. Yeah, can things, I, yeah let me just mention, yes. you know, just because you brought him up. So yeah. I have seen one of the ways he expresses it is he says, so yeah, what I'm concerned with is this allergy to aggression on the part of, you know, the NAPsters or something or the Lalbertarians. And um, from his other comments, it's, so no, it's not an allergy to aggression. In other words, I think what he's saying is the types of things he has in mind for what people should be doing, like, you know, taking over the local GOP or whatever. Yes, yes. That he's saying that's not aggression, whereas he thinks some libertarians think voting per se is. Yes. So right. I think it's confusing if he frames the issue as these you know, some of these purist libertarian types have an allergy to aggression because they say, no, it's it's not that they're against aggression that's your problem. It's that they are labeling something aggression, which actually isn't. Correct. So, and, and that might just like, oh, you're quibbling over word, but no, that's kind of important. Sure. Because otherwise it sounds like you're saying, let's put initiating aggression on the table of our toolbox. And if that's yes. not what you're saying, then stop saying that, you know? Yeah. And for instance, I, I live in a very, I live in Lockhart, Texas. I don't know if you ever came through here. But I'm considering. You guys got good barbecue there, right? The best, the best. Yeah, it's the, it's I, the barbecue. I've been there for that. Literally, I mean, seriously. That's yeah. that's why I, w- I went there. It's the barbecue capital of Texas, sanctioned by by the government. That's not force. Um, <laughs> I'm considering running for city council and other positions at some point, and I've spoken with people like Tho Bishop, who I'm not going to do this, but who have said a very good strategy would be for someone like you to be the local sheriff. And while that's not particularly my interest, I think that would be extremely valuable to have someone who shares your view, uh, Bob, or my views on generally on liberty and freedom to be the local sheriff. But you do have agorists and or ANCAPs who say, oh my God, you can't be the sheriff. That's not libertarian. That's, that's aggression. Right, right. So yeah, so here we get into a, a murkier area. So I, again, I don't want to, I'm going to put it, it, it's confusing because there's lots of different conversations and there's different people talking. And so not everyone, you know, agrees yes. 100% with everyone else. And so sometimes you might say like, oh no, I saw this one guy say this one thing on Twitter and right. that's what I'm, who I'm punching against. So I, I get all that. Um, so y- yes, it is true that there are certain libertarians who think even just casting a vote, yes. period, is initiating aggression against your citizens and others disagree with that and, and so forth. Um to, to give an example, the kind of thing I mean. So yeah, I would, when it comes to like resisting a federal vaccine passport, I would have much preferred if like Governor Abbott had said something along the lines of, you know, 
I, I don't want any law enforcement at any level in Texas to cooperate with the federal government. You know, mm -hmm. no business here will be sanctioned if they fail to, you know, administer a vaccine or to check their customers for vaccine status. You know, if, if FBI agents come in here, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we're going to arrest them, but we will not cooperate with them. No, no Texas personnel will cooperate in any way. Right. I would have preferred that rather than saying it's illegal for anyone to, you know what I mean? Because for one thing, I mean, this is the quibble, but that applied to every firm, not just the ones with 100 or more employees. So technically he was, you know, more than counteracting the, the you know, what was the Biden administration was threatening. But I'm just saying stuff like that in general, I, I would prefer if it had been a little bit more carefully tailored to show yeah. we are merely not cooperating with this federal apparatus coming in as opposed to we're going to do the mirror image, mm -hmm. you know, telling businesses what they need to do, you know, on our own. So stuff like, but you're right. So if, if someone were to run for sheriff who had really libertarian-esque views and just mostly didn't, you know, well, we're not going to enforce federal drug laws. Yes. You know what I mean? So it's it's not that we can, quote, make it legal if it's against federal law, but if everybody knows we're not prosecuting, we're not arresting you, you know, our DA is not going to prosecute you or anything, we're not going to cooperate with the feds, it would be hard for the federal government to come in and, and do something about it. Mm -hmm. And we will just prosecute or arrest people who violate property rights. Physical. Right, yeah. We're right. busy hunting down bank robbers and rapists and stuff yes. like that. We're not going to, you know, some guys growing marijuana. We don't really, that's not high on our priorities. Right. And uh, last one, what do you think of the phrase that libertarians in the past and sometimes still say, we are neither left nor right? So I, I used to like the way when I was much younger, when sometimes people would summarize it and say, we're, well, how does it go? We're fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. <laughs> right. I understood what they meant by that because they were trying to say, you know, for the reasons a lot of people don't like big government spending and they don't like, uh, you know, minimum wage laws and whatever. So we're with the, re, you know, conservative Republicans on that stuff. But then with the other people that say, hey, get the government out of my bedroom and what mm -hmm. I want to inject into my body is my business. We're with the liberals on that stuff. And it, you know, and it made, it was consistent. It was like, you know, there was, there was a certain symmetry there. Like, oh yeah, why would I let people in Washington, you know, make decisions about my business or my customers or my employees or what I put into my body or who I date? What, are they, what do they have to do with that? And there was this, um, but I did, I did a lot of libertarians, though I know, criticize that formulation because it sounds like we don't have our own coherent philosophy that we're just doing a grab bag of taking, you know, like a buffet, like, oh, I like some of this stuff from the right and we like some of this stuff from yes. the left, as yeah. opposed to, no, we're actually being the co consistent ones and we have a coherent worldview. And it's actually like the conservatives who are weird that, oh, the U.S. federal government's a bunch of buffoons who are going to wreck the inner city, but let's go remake the Middle East as long as we have some bombers at our disposal. Like, that makes no sense. Or, right. you know, liberals, wow, America is this white supremacist nation and that's why we should have the federal government be in charge of healthcare because, you know, we all want Nazis to be in charge of whether your grandma gets yeah. a kidney transplant, right? right? I mean, that makes no sense. So it's, so I, I understand, you know, the recoiling against that. I suppose it, it largely depends on who the audience is that you're talking to as, as to how you explain your viewpoint. If it's somebody who's never heard of libertarianism, maybe, you know, and they just listen to Sean Hannity on the one hand and CNN yeah. on the other, maybe it, it does make sense to try to, you know, extract that. The last thing I'll say on that is, in terms of the culture wars, though, I there is a difference between the right and the left. Yes. You know what I mean? And so it's not that that's some artificial thing that the statists have concocted. Like, there really is a, a difference. And, you know, and I, I side with the right on, on those sort of cultural issues. Yes. And, I, and I think, you know, it's it, to say math isn't racist is more important than the capital gains tax is too high.
Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was speaking with Lou Rockwell and I, I mentioned that I had told an audience we should quit saying that we're neither left nor right. And he says very kindly, of course, well, no one else says that besides Walter Block. And I, <laughs> I said, uh, sir, a lot of people say it, especially people within the LP. And he says, well, yeah, but they're all leftists. <laughs> one of my favorite quotes I'll always remember. Bob, I will get you out of here. Plug away. Talk about where they can find this ebook we've been discussing the whole time and plug really anything you want. Okay, sure. So yeah, if you go to texascommonsense.com, just like it sounds, you know, that redirects and you you can get either there's the PDF version or like I say, now on Amazon, I have a, there's a print on demand physical book that's five bucks and the, the Kindle version that's like 99 cents if you want that. So again, texascommonsense.com to, to see the pamphlet we've been talking about. And then more generally, my podcast, I talk about this and other issues. So that's bobmurphyshow.com. Excellent. I will link to all of that in the show notes page for this episode. Bob Murphy, thank you, sir, for being on. Thanks for having me, Buck. It was a pleasure. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.